Hello, and welcome to this audio edition of Philip Husher's program notes for upcoming concerts by the Chicago Symphony Orchestra. My name is Rich Caparella. Concerts by the CSO on Thursday, May 16th through Tuesday, the 21st, feature guest conductor Miko Frank and violinist Hilary Hahn in a program of Einar Johanni Rautavara's A Requiem in Our Time, Violin Concerto by Sibelius, and after intermission, Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 2. Here are Philip Pusher's program notes on Aino Johanni Rautavara's A Requiem in Our Time, a work lasting about 13 minutes. Aino Johanni Rautavara was the first Finnish composer to command world attention after Sibelius early in the 20th century. For many years, he was a low-profile figure whose name was barely known outside his native land. Rautavara was born into a musical family. His father was an opera singer and cantor. He studied musicology at the University of Helsinki and composition at the Sibelius Academy. It was the 90-year-old Sibelius, in fact, who selected him for a Kusevitsky Foundation grant to study in the United States. In 1955, Rautavara came to this country and worked with Vincent Persichetti at Juilliard and with Roger Sessions and Aaron Copeland at the Tanglewood Music Center. After he returned to Finland, Rautavara taught at the Sibelius Academy. Although Rautavara's music was regularly performed at home and had won several awards, his popularity was largely limited to Finland until the 1990s when he became kind of a cult figure both throughout Europe and the United States. Although his works aren't overtly religious, their spiritual and contemplative nature conveyed in highly tonal music of simplicity and atmospheric beauty began to attract a wide following, particularly from listeners drawn to the suddenly fashionable music of such composers as Arvo Pert and Henrik Goretzky. Grautavara also has unwittingly cashed in on a rising fascination with angels, which he anticipated by more than a decade. His own interest in the dark and powerful force of angels was inspired by a childhood dream and by a cloud formation in the shape of an angel that he saw many years later from an airplane window. This obsession, they repeat in my mind like a mantra that radiates musical energy, he says, has influenced much of his output, beginning with Angels and Visitations in 1978. The last manifestation was his seventh symphony subtitled Angel of Light, composed in 1994. Rautavara's music has evolved over his long career from neoclassicism, a variety of Stravinsky-like music exemplified by A Requiem in Our Time, through serialism to his own idiosyncratic language. He has fashioned something distinctive and personal of the Sibelius legacy he inherited, but calls himself a romantic composer. A romantic has no coordinates. In time, he is in yesterday or tomorrow, but never in today. An early work, A Requiem in Our Time, scored for 13 brass instruments and percussion, won the International Thor Johnson Brass Competition in Cincinnati in 1954, making a name for the composer while he was still, in fact, a student. It was this score that prompted Sibelius to help arrange for Rautavara to study in the United States at Juilliard and Tanglewood. Rautavara would later refer to the work as his breakthrough. There are four short, 
highly individual movement, beginning with a hymn and ending with a slow, pensive lacrimosa. It is dedicated to Rautavara's mother, who had died during the war. Program notes by Philip Huscher on Aino Johanni Rautavara's A Requiem in Our Time. And now on to Sergei Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 2, a work lasting about 56 minutes. It's astonishing that Rachmaninoff ever wrote a second symphony. He was so shattered by the disastrous, ill-received premiere of his first symphony in 1897, the most agonizing hour of my life, as he later put it, that for the next three years he suffered from chronic depression and struggled day after day with a composer's worst fear, the inability to write a page of music worth saving. Sketches for a new symphony were abandoned, and work on an opera, Francesca da Rimini, was shelved. Rachmaninoff visited Leo Tolstoy, hoping that contact with the great larger-than-life novelist would stimulate his creativity, but their conversations discouraged him even more. Finally, at his friend's insistence, in 1900, he went to see Dr. Nikolai Dahl, a psychiatrist noted for treating alcoholism through hypnosis. Dahl was also an amateur violinist and a great music lover. After four months of Dahl's hypnosis, you will work with great facility, was one of the doctor's often repeated leitmotifs. Rachmaninoff suddenly recovered. He not only began to compose again and with great facility, but he also soon finished the score that became his most popular work, the second piano concerto, which he dedicated to Dahl. Rachmaninoff played the piano solo at the triumphant premiere of the concerto in 1901, proving to the public that he had left his difficulties behind with the old century. The writing block had been overcome, but if the piano concerto marked the turning point, it was his second symphony that proved his ultimate victory, as well as his vindication. After the success of the concerto, Rachmaninoff returned to composition on a regular basis, although he still made time for concert appearances both as pianist and as conductor, a new role he had taken up during his creative crisis. He now wrote steadily piano pieces, songs, a cello sonata, and two operas, including the shelved Francesca da Rimini. By the fall of 1906, Rachmaninoff was such a celebrity in his native land that in order to escape the public eye, he moved with his wife and infant daughter to Dresden, chosen with no more reason than the memory of a fine performance of Die Meistersinger that he had attended there. He also liked being near Leipzig, the home of his favorite conductor, Arthur Nikisch, and the celebrated Gewandhaus Orchestra. In Dresden, where he once again became a full-time composer, Rachmaninoff at last began to sketch a new symphony with sudden difficulty and in total secrecy. Obviously, he had not banished the painful memories of his first. Finally, in February 1907, when word of his newest project leaked out in the German press, he confessed to a friend, I have composed a symphony, it's true. I finished it a month ago and immediately put it aside. It was a severe worry to me, and I am not going to think about it anymore. But by the summer, he was back at work, polishing the symphony for its public unveiling. 
Rachmaninoff conducted the work at the St. Petersburg premiere in January 1908 with great reassuring success. The symphony won the Glinka Prize of 1,000 rubles that year and quickly made the rounds of the major orchestras of the world. It was performed in Chicago for the first time in 1911. But Rachmaninoff's vindication was a qualified one because wherever the symphony was performed, except under the composer's own baton, it was so extensively cut that this almost hour-long symphony was sometimes reduced to a mere 45 minutes. Few other major works of orchestral music, including Bruckner's most misunderstood symphonies, were regularly presented to the public in such a savagely butchered state. These traditional cuts, the New York Philharmonic has kept a list of 29 cuts supposedly approved by the composer, range from tiny but still disfiguring snips, a measure or two of introductory accompaniment, for example, to major surgery, such as the removal of the main theme from the recapitulation of the adagio. The true stature of Rachmaninoff's second symphony was largely unsuspected. Ironically, a score that was routinely cut because its material was considered too insubstantial to sustain its length ended up sounding even more inconsequential, with its balance skewed and its forward sweep blunted. Only in recent years, when conductors have begun to play the piece in its entirety, has Rachmaninoff's true achievement as a composer been revealed. At these performances, Jaap van Sweden conducts the symphony uncut. Throughout Rachmaninoff's life, it was fashionable, if not in fact honorable, in progressive music circles to disparage his music. Rachmaninoff had always worried that by splitting his time between playing the piano, conducting, and composing, he had spread himself too thin. I have chased three hairs, he once said. Can I be certain that I have captured one? For many years, Rachmaninoff's stature as a pianist was undisputed. He regularly performed with the Chicago Symphony Orchestra beginning in 1909 when he played his second piano concerto here during his first American tour. He appeared with the orchestra for the last time in 1943, just six weeks before his death, as the soloist in Beethoven's first piano concerto and his own Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. But by the time of his death in 1943, he had been written off as an old-fashioned composer, hopelessly sentimental, out of touch, and irrelevant. As Virgil Thompson told the young playwright Edward Albee in 1948, it is really extraordinary, after all, that a composer so famous should have enjoyed so little esteem of his fellow composers. Rachmaninoff's great Russian contemporary, Igor Stravinsky, for example, never could stomach the music or the man even when they were neighbors in Los Angeles. A six-foot scowl was his summation of his famously grim-faced colleague. The sacrosanct Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians in its fifth edition concluded its dismal appraisal of his output. The enormous popular success some few of Rachmaninoff's works had in his lifetime is not likely to last, and musicians never regarded it with much favor. But in the past few years, his star has been on the rise. Now, as Rachmaninoff always hoped, it is his music and not his piano playing that keeps his name alive. Even Rachmaninoff eventually admitted that his first symphony was in fact a weak, childish, strained, and bombastic work, 
words no more sympathetic than those of Cesar Qui's devastating opening night review. Qui suggested that Rachmaninoff's music sprang straight from a conservatory in hell. The new symphony proves how seriously Rachmaninoff took the challenges of the form the second time around. The first movement is quite long, but it only demonstrates Rachmaninoff's command of extended paragraphs and his mastery of carefully controlled suspense. As a conscious effort to unify the entire work, Rachmaninoff begins quietly and slowly with a low-string motto theme that reappears already disguised as early as the main violin melody that takes over once the tempo picks up. The second movement is a very lively, brilliantly orchestrated scherzo that unexpectedly makes way for a broad, lyrical melody of characteristic lushness. The trio midsection begins with a fugue launched by the second violins. After the return of the scherzo, Rachmaninoff introduces the same dies irae chant melody that he also cites in his Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini and the Isle of the Dead. The adagio opens with a lovely, sighing violin gesture that would sustain an entire movement for many a romantic composer that Rachmaninoff quickly pushes aside for a generous, long-breathed clarinet melody. It unfolds slowly, circling but never repeating itself for some 22 measures. At the end, the clarinet and the violins exchange roles. The finale begins with festive dancing music, continues with a big theme destined to return triumphantly at the end, and even stops for just six measures to reconsider the melody from the slow movement. The development section crests with an astonishing passage of descending scales, cascading at different speeds and from different heights, like the clangorous pealing of bells. And the big melody, one of Rachmaninoff's finest, does not disappoint, but returns in octaves to sweep in the final cadences. Program notes by Philip Pusher on Rachmaninoff's Symphony No. 2. My name is Rich Caparella. Thanks for listening.